baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Mike, if you were stranded on a deserted island and you can only bring one type of food with you, what would it be? Well, do I have a refrigerator? Mm, no. No, I don't. Okay, then probably mm-hmm. a few cases of Kraft mac and cheese. Oh, I love mac and cheese. That's a good answer. Um, well, my favorite food is sushi, but I have a feeling that it probably wouldn't hold very well, as you're saying with that fridge question. Uh, but maybe fried chicken. Yeah, I'll go with fried chicken. You'd have to eat it fast, though. Any sauce with the chicken? Oh, hot sauce, probably. Maybe maybe buffalo sauce. Buffalo sauce, okay, but no ketchup. No, you know, I, I'm not really a fan of ketchup, which makes me really impressed with the subject of the headline we're looking into today. Elvis Francois is his name. He was stranded for 24 days in waters near Colombia, and he had to survive almost entirely on Heinz ketchup. Rescuers finally found him when they saw help carved into the hull of his boat, and now Heinz wants to buy him a new boat. It really is a fascinating story, but I've got to go back to this. You're not a fan of, who's not a fan of ketchup? It's a Chicago thing. We don't let people put ketchup on hot dogs. I'll I'll accept it for fries sometimes, but I'd still prefer like barbecue sauce. Okay, well, no accounting for taste, I guess. <laughs> this is something offbeat. I'm your host, Mike Rogers. That is one of our producers, Lauren Barry. And we wanted to know more about surviving dangerous situations. So we reached out to Josh Piven. He's co-author of the Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook and its numerous sequels, including the upcoming Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook Apocalypse. I think I interviewed you shortly after the first book came out. What was that back in like uh, 99? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it would have been ninety nine. Yeah, so long, long time ago, but still at it. It clearly worked out well. At first, one it sold as uh, like ten million copies, going going strong ever since. Are you surprised at the the enduring strength of this franchise? It is interesting. Yeah, I'm continually surprised. I'm not surprised that people are kind of still interested in the survival information that we provide certainly based on current events and everything happening in the world it does seem like kind of a, a perennial topic that people are interested in so i'm not surprised about that i i am surprised i think that we kind of continually get new new generations of of readers that you know wouldn't didn't necessarily know about the original book but they've seen some of the spin-offs and um yeah they still you know we branch out a little bit but they they continue to do pretty well you know people also like to read entertaining and humorous survival information so we we have that too we don't we don't play it too straight you covered a lot of ground over the years i mean everything from shark attacks to quicksand and before we get to the new book i gotta mention quicksand because that's something that's always fascinated me what should i do the next time i fall in a pit of quicksand yeah it's interesting you know quicksand actually is not everybody thinks of the the lawrence of arabia scene you know getting sucked down in the sand pit but it actually can be mud or viscous liquid doesn't necessarily have to be sand but you know the the interesting thing is 
you can actually float on quicksand. It's kind of when you struggle, it creates the suction effect and that's what pulls you down further. So that the experts actually say to, to try to try to get on your back if you can and float rather than struggle against it and get a stick or something to put under you to help distribute your weight on the surface of the quicksand. And then you kind of like do the backstroke as it were to get out of the the quicksand pit. But the main thing is not not to struggle, which of course is what happens in that famous Lawrence of Arabia scene. And it just creates a vacuum and it just keeps sucking you down. No thrashing around. Okay. No thrashing, right, when you come across quicksand in Texas. So this headline that we're looking into this week, I guess you've heard about this. This is that guy swept out to sea off the coast of Columbia, right? Oh, yep. So he, he hangs onto his capsized boat for three and a half weeks and survives on, it says here, he survived on garlic powder and ketchup. You've ever heard of anyone surviving on anything stranger than that? If only he had a, a hot dog or some, <laughs> some fries, you know, he would have had the whole package. <laughs> well, I mean, the hanging onto the boat, that's one actually one of the first pieces of advice that we give, which is, you know, the boat is more buoyant than you are. So if there's any of the boat that's, you know, still there, whether it's capsized or not, don't abandon the boat right and the boat's obviously easier to see than a human in the water so if you know the whole probably um easier to see you know even if it's capsized so so that was good right he didn't he didn't abandon his vessel it's a pretty crazy story but you know the the main thing is at sea you know we discovered in our research is you know you can go a long time without food i mean potentially weeks you know if you're hydrated right so if you have enough water or in this case probably packeted ketchup is probably mostly water you know tomato sauce it is sugary and salty so that's probably not the help not the healthiest option if you're if you're adrift at sea but if you can stay hydrated you know you can you can last a long time assuming you're not attacked by sharks and that's the key the hydration i've heard it said that in order of importance it's water food then shelter well i think i guess the answer is it depends, right? If you're in really cold water, then you're going to die of hypothermia, right? If, you, if you're Leo DiCaprio and Titanic, you're going to die of hypothermia before you have to worry about dehydration. So, but again, I mean, let's say you can, you know, get out of the water on, on your craft or whatever, you know, piece, get, get most of your body out of the water. Um, and you can, you know, you're not going to freeze to death. So then, you know, you have to worry about water, where are you going to get water from? And we can go into the whole drinking your own urine if you want to go um, really into the weeds. But, you know, getting fresh water at sea is really difficult. But if you have emergency water, obviously, you could do that. You can also capture rainwater if you have some sort of vessel, assuming that it rains wherever you are. Drinking seawater is a really bad idea, and you'll probably die of kidney failure in short order. So you definitely don't want to do that. Yeah, you want to keep as much of your skin covered as possible, especially if you're out like this guy floating around in the Caribbean. Oh, yeah. I mean, sure. Certainly sunburn could be very painful. You're not likely to die of sunburn, you know, in a, in a couple of days. Obviously, you need to protect yourself from the sun. You don't want to get too hot either, right? You could have heat stroke. You could go that way, too. So I don't know how much shelter he had on his craft. Well, the boat was flipped, right? So I guess he could have gotten underneath it to protect himself from the sun. Or crawled in, right? I mean, if there was an air pocket under there, right? And he just wasn't, um, you know, just like in the water. I think in the Caribbean, sharks would, would definitely be a concern for me, um, you know, in, in, in warmer waters. Um, maybe he was able to scavenge some things from inside the boat. That could be possible. I don't know how many ketchup packets he actually had. He must have had a lot. 
You know, regardless, three and a half weeks is pretty impressive. I don't care what you've got to eat. That is pretty impressive. But I wonder how many days it takes before you're like, God, ketchup again. Now, Lauren, my worst case scenario is drowning, which I've actually almost done twice in my life. And I'm a good swimmer. It was just more stupidity than anything. Here's a pro tip. Do not jump into Lake Huron with sandals on and think you're going to be able to swim back to the dock. That sounds scary, Mike. Um, well, for me, when I was a kid, my family took this trip to Arizona and we very briefly got lost in the desert. Um, ever since then, deserts have pretty much just really creeped me out. They're so quiet and there's no water anywhere. I would very much like to avoid getting lost in one ever again. And you know, as a city person, I anytime I'm like lost in the wilderness or I don't think I can get to like a McDonald's really fast, I get a little scared. And the snakes. Yes. But really, I'm more afraid of being far away from a cheeseburger, to be honest. But no ketchup. No ketchup on it, no. Do you have a personal worst-case scenario situation? It's at the top of your list. It would just freak you out. You know, actually, a lot of people have asked me that. I think, you know, the, the kind of the Robinson Crusoe... You know, Tom Hanks stranded on a desert island. I, you know, I think I think that would be pretty difficult. You know, I think even if you could survive, n- not knowing what your chances of rescue are, could you know, and you were by assuming you were by yourself, I think that would be pretty depressing. I think you know, obviously, I, I think about the shark attacks and the, the bear attacks, and certainly not not a great way to go. You know, either either one of those. Personally, the air crashes are something that I think about only because you know it's. It's typically, you know, something is going to happen and it's not going, you know, it's like, unless it's some catastrophic, like in air, you know, bomb or something like that, or there's a huge, you know, instant destruction of a plane. I think that would be, you know, pretty frightening if you knew it, you know, a plane was going down and there wasn't going to be, you know, you had time to think about it and there wasn't much chance to do anything that way. I think that would be pretty frightening. Yeah. What's the worst, worst case scenario you have been in? Oh, geez. Sure. Both my rotator cuffs during COVID. That, that was pretty sucky. <laughs> Trying to get surgery at the beginning of at the beginning of deep COVID was not something I ever want to repeat. That was difficult. But that's certainly certainly not life threatening. You know, I've, I've had some close calls traveling in various places, crime and, and things of that nature. I mean, I, I, I'm not bare grills out there or, you know, the cast of alone out in the wilderness. So I, it hasn't been that that extreme. Currently, the the drain line on my washing machine is leaking. So that's about as bad as it gets at the moment. But, you know, we are living in pretty safe times. A little over a decade ago, Harvard University psychologist Steven Pinker argued that we are living in the most peaceful era of history. However, that was before the pandemic, the war in Ukraine. And as January, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists announced that the doomsday clock, their doomsday clock, it's closer to global catastrophe than it has ever been. Since you started this, have we become more anxious as a species, more easily rattled, more nervous about these sorts of things? Yeah, right. Doom scrolling has come into the to the lingo. Historically speaking, we're living in probably the safest time in human history. Now, maybe not if you live in Ukraine, but in general, kind of on the global scale, you know, things are pretty safe, right? I mean, like lifespans are pretty long and infant mortality is pretty low. So, you know, in that sense, you wonder 
you know, do people just, you know, need something to worry about or are they, are they looking to see if they could survive things because they know they probably won't have to. So there's that, but then there's also like COVID. These things are, are real, right? I mean, there are, there's lots of vectors now for diseases, viruses that emerge. They get around the globe before you can stop them. And, you know, I think now people kind of feel like they're, they're living on edge, you know, things are normal to the next, you know, Greek letter variant that comes out. And then they start worrying about, well, what if it's worse, right? What if the mortality rate is higher? What if it's more like Ebola, you know, rather than the flu, right? I, I do think people, they think about it and they worry about it, rightly or wrongly. So the new book, is it out already or when is it out? No, worst case scenario, survival handbook, Apocalypse. Yeah, we went there. Comes out in uh, end of October, like uh, just before Halloween, appropriately enough. And what kind of ground are you going to cover in this one? We always wanted to do a climate change book. Um, so we were thinking about how, how to do that. And then, you know, of course, COVID came along and changed everything. And, you know, so we had this global catastrophe in, in terms of uh, this contagion. And then, of course, we also have the wars going on. We have climate caused flooding and fires and sea level rise. So we kind of combined it all into this compendium of kind of apocalyptic situations. So we do a lot of climate survival things. We did cover the zombies. We cover the alien, the alien invasion. What if you have to mate with an alien? How do you tell if the alien is a lizard? How do you pilot the alien craft? So we had a little, we had a little fun with that, but we also do things like rebuilding, you know, basically how to survive if civilization is wiped out. So whether that's, you know, bartering or building a shelter, shelter, having to, you know, trade gold or pack a go bag in 30 minutes, and then how to rebuild society, how to kind of get people in your clan or how to deal with clans that are attacking your clan. So kind of the, some of the, um, the more wild post-apocalyptic situations that we could think of, but there's a, there's a lot of material out there. I'm Mike Rogers. Thanks for listening to Something Offbeat. This episode written and produced by Lauren Berry and Chris Blake. Audio editing by Chris Blake. Original music by Myron Kaplan and editorial support from Cooper Mall. And to keep listening, please subscribe to us on the Odyssey app or Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have your own offbeat story that you think we should cover, we'd love to hear about it. Send it to us at somethingoffbeat at odyssey at A-U-D-A-C-Y dot com. Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.